Hi, I'm Matthew Ball, and you're listening to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Hi, all, and welcome back to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mattis. Today's guest is Matthew Ball. I first came across his blog last year, and I knew from the second I started reading it that this is someone I wanted to talk to. Matthew Ball has a lot to say about subjects as diverse as the streaming wars, as media conglomerates, the future of audio podcasts, and perhaps most importantly, the metaverse. What creates it, where is it today, and where it's going. It was on that last subject that I, in particular, wanted to focus on. Um, And so today's podcast, while very wide-ranging, centers on this fundamental question. What is the metaverse? What is gaming's role in the metaverse? Who are the major players? And where is it going? Without further ado, Matthew Ball on the metaverse. All right, here we go. How are you? I'm quite well, thanks. Let's start with the opening. You and I have been chatting for on and off for a few months now. Uh, you've you've got a relatively active website and 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 blog, and I know inside the industry you're you're kind of known. I mean, I would say you're you're known as a sort of thought leader on on a variety of subjects: um, convergence, media, streaming, gaming, metaverse. You you cover a lot of stuff. But when I thought that I wanted to do a podcast episode about the metaverse, there was no one I wanted to talk to more than you. I would say that when it comes to the metaverse, you're you're one of the guys. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of a background about yourself and your career and kind of when and why you think you became the quote unquote metaverse guy. I guess there are only two really important ways to address that. The first is passion, which is to say, I have always been most motivated by the things that I'm spending my personal time doing, right? There's a number of us that are incredibly fortunate to spend their day doing something that they're good at, but then to come home and want to be associated with it in some way, shape, or form. And then the second element of that is just curiosity. I think those questions of hard problems for which there's no playbook, no certainty, no crisp vision of the future are just exciting to me. And so within the context of the metaverse, I've been spending more and more time, like most of us, for several years now in virtual worlds, in games, socializing, playing around with virtual economies, digital goods, and watching how the technologies, standards, partnerships, and devices that we use on a day-to-day basis or interact with start to converge on this idea. And so the metaverse is such a great question or topic because we've known about many of the core elements since the 50s or 60s. You can find it very easily in the literature Much of it feels very real right now. And yet the specificity of what does the metaverse look like in 2030? How will we interact? Even which are the main companies? All of that is unclear. And so that convergence of passion and curiosity brought me to here. And then, of course, COVID-19 and the related lockdowns really brought this topic to the forefront in a way I would never have anticipated when I started writing about it two and a half years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you did that very long, what was like a six-part series or something like that on Epic and Fortnite. Um, and and I, you know, as I was going through your your backlogs, you know, the backlog of all of your other sort of writings, for sure, you, you started talking about this earlier than I would say many others did. So given that you 
have been thinking and writing about the metaverse longer than I would say many. Uh, I think this next question, I'm really interested in your answer because I know when I first sort of became aware of this concept and it, it wasn't Ready Player One, it you know predates that by many, many years. But can you define metaverse as it stands for you? And, and I'd be really interested in if you could give some examples of this idea of the metaverse that popped for you from pop culture over the years and kind of just talk a little bit about what you think they get right or wrong. I, I love hearing people talk about the metaverse as it is sort of explained in pop culture. I find that personally very informative. Sure, I would say one of the fun places to start is actually to unpack how it's typically used. And that is to say, we often hear the metaverse described as a virtual world, some sort of sense of VR, uh, as a game. And all of these are important, right? We're talking about hardware, we're talking about content, we're talking about services and experiences. And yet that's very much like defining the internet as the iPhone, or the internet as Google, a directory, or to describe the internet as Comcast Xfinity, which provides broadband, or to a lesser extent, to refer to the internet as HTML, a markup language. What's right. important to understand about the metaverse as an idea is that it is like all of these constituent parts of the internet. And so when we take a look at it, we can really just describe it with attributes. So for example, some of those core attributes will be technical capabilities, Right now, we have significant constraints on the number of concurrent users or people who can participate in a single shared real-time simulation. And that is to say that you and some of your friends and some people you don't know can all go into a virtual world place, space, game environment. But there's a very low cap to how many people can do that. In addition, they tend not to be in synchronicity or in relative real time with all of the other groups of people who are doing it. Right. So one of the foundational elements of the metaverse is these technical capabilities that are slowly coming online. We used to play Mario Party with four other people on a local device. Now you can play with 24 people on a multiplayer network. Fortnite comes in and says, let's do 100. Then you have Roblox and Call of Duty pushed to 150 and 200. And so that underlying technical capability is important. We also then need to talk about the experiences that will be part of that. And that's where we start to get into these ideas of virtual worlds like a Minecraft, a Roblox, a Grand Theft Auto. But on top of that, we have to add additional attributes. Some of these are technical, one of which is persistence. Right. We tend to overlook the idea that not only is the virtual world or virtual games, however you want to specify, limited in the number of people who can participate, they reset. And that's right. actually really problematic. Uh, there are some benefits, right? We can think about how easy, how much better municipal infrastructure would be if you could just snap your fingers and reset it from coax to fiber. But the lack of persistence, the idea that something you do gets reset, it doesn't have memory, is an impediment to actually investing in virtual space as opposed to just participating in it. Another key element is to take a look at the standards and protocols that are required for interoperability. Right. I think we'll get into this a lot during the conversation. But right now, the metaverse as it stands is limited by the fact that most metaverse-like experiences have almost no interoperability or only local interoperability, which is to say what you do in Fortnite cannot really be taken elsewhere. 
When you're in Roblox, you can bring your Robux and your avatar into any intra-Roblox experience, but not outside of that. And so this connects to the last element that's important, which is the emergence of a virtual economy that is broadly similar to how the real world operates, which is to say, we create goods, we perform tasks, we hire people, there's scarcity, trading, and investment. And that's where interoperability becomes very important Because if you cannot take one thing you built or bought from one place to another, you can't have that economy. Or instead, you just have a very locally limited one. And so to answer your question, the pop culture experiences that most people refer to, whether that's Ready Player One or Snow Crash, have a large number of elements here. I think most of us can look at them and really identify key elements of exactly what I just described. Yeah. And yet we're still stuck in almost skeuomorphic understandings, right? So if you go back to the web in the 1990s, all of us knew the future would have more real-time communications, that we do work online, we'd go to school online, and yet we described it as the World Wide Web and the information superhighway. Yeah. Those aren't wrong per se, they're incredibly limited. And so that's typically where today's pop culture understandings lie. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Snow Crash. That was... I literally took a, a course in Sejap, kind of like a college level education here in Quebec. And the course was called um, Cyberpunk Fiction. And obviously, you know, we read a bunch of Gibson and, you know, we, we sort of read all of the, the sort of big players at the time. And Snow Crash has stuck with me to this day, not just because it has what I think is the the single best name for a, a character in, in entertainment. I think hero protagonist is mm-hmm. just the, the best name ever. Um, but the idea of the uh, the digital economy, right, it really stuck out in that book to me of like, hold on, I can go into a game effectively, buy something from another player, and that money is going to go into their bank account, like they can actually spend that money on real world stuff, that blew my mind. And to a certain extent, I've been, you know, chasing that ever since and continue to chase that through this day. But but we'll, we'll talk a lot more about uh, sort of player economies and business models a little bit, a little bit deeper. But, but so I'm going to recap just to make sure I, I, got, I got it all. Lots of players, ideally synchronously, persistent world, um, you talked about a player economy, and, and, and that was a really important one as well. Um, and you made a point to sort of disassociate it from necessarily the underlying technology. Um, but, you know, persistent world with lots of players, ideally all at the same time with an underlying economy that's sort of technology agnostic. Oh, and is interoperable with other experiences so you can sort of extract value from one and carry it over to another those four things playing together are starting to lay what you consider to be the foundation for the metaverse. Is that is that right? Right. And, and one thing that I think is important to identify is we don't have to think of it as a singular virtual world right. in the sense that we have interoperability for the most part between all web pages on That's the right. internet. You have That's a right. access point, which is a browser, but also note we can all use or even roll up our own browsers. But what's important is that the online world, the web page world, isn't about a singular place. AOL early on actually was trying to go after this sort of model of a metaverse, but for the HTML web, right? There's a single gateway that converges broadband, 
plus access plus account, and they would direct you into all of their content. That's a potential model for the metaverse, and that's actually what we think of in Ready Player One, but it is more common to think about it, or more correct, to think about it as the idea that just as HTML and the web is stood up by common standards, there's this one thing that's a unifying technology, and yet many, many, many different experiences that are independently operated, some of which are gated by paywalls, some of which are gated by invitation, but they're all broadly connected. And that's why we can go to Wikipedia, click an URL, end up at the New York Times that takes you to a Substack blog. And all of those are running consistently. The last thing that's important there and perfect for your Snow Crash point is when you read Snow Crash, and eventually I suppose we'll be watching it and feeling it too, they're very clear to say that there are many, many different ways to access it. Sometimes they're looking at it on a laptop, right? You are just plain viewing it in 2D with a traditional screen. Other times it is VR. Other times it is just accessing the data. Other times it's an augmentation of the physical world around you. And sometimes you're using haptic devices, sometimes you're not. That's important here. And it's important not just because that's how the technical definition works, but the more restrictive we are in access and usage, the more limited the metaverse and its interactions and economies will be as well. We've touched upon a lot of my deeper questions as as we move forward. So we'll we'll come back to a bunch of stuff. I'm going to actually jump forward uh, to a question that I was planning on asking a little bit later, and and then we'll come back a little bit. Of the four critical points you talked about, you didn't mention the you didn't mention the player, the avatar, the the digital twin, the the who am I inside the metaverse. And I've seen different thoughts on that. I've seen some people say, I should be me. I really should be a digital twin. Ideally, you know, AI powered so that if I have to disconnect, my, you know, my digital twin continues to represent and persist inside the space. And, and, and then when I kind of reconnect, it's like, here's an update of everything that you missed while you were, while you were logged out. I've read and talk to other people who think that, you know, that's making it too real, right? That then I don't get the benefit of escapism. I don't get the benefits of anonymity. I don't get that fantasy of role-playing and being someone else inside this digital world. In fact, I'm kind of limited by who I am in the real world. Do you have thoughts about avatars? And, you know, would you consider the concept of the avatar, the digital twin, to be important inside the metaverse or, or less so? But I think it's important to understand that there's not a singular framework that needs to be applied here. It's not a question of every experience in the metaverse needs to have an avatar. It's not that every one of these avatars needs to look photorealistic or that they need to actually look like you. There's no requirement in much the same way. You can go into a shop and, you know, as we're seeing right now, you can wear a mask, you can wear a headdress, you can wear sunglasses. There are places in which these are and are not appropriate There are places that enforce dress codes and not. Totally. There's no reason to believe that that won't be the case in the metaverse. And in fact, especially if and as you believe that the experiences will be widely distributed, much like the web is today. There's a Google ecosystem, an Apple ecosystem, an Amazon ecosystem, a Snapchat ecosystem. Each of them are likely to have different policies. Facebook, for example, does not allow anonymous accounts, does not allow joke accounts. Twitter, of course, is full of them. And so the baseline expectation would be something similar to that. And then we would think about what the reasons for these are. Obviously, some people feel more comfortable in an avatar. And I think that's a very common human response. We can all think about the days in which 
We don't want to be on Zoom. Yeah. We would rather do an audio call. And in fact, there are many times in which people go on Zoom, they're fine going on Zoom, and yet they find that their physical appearance isn't what they wanted it to be. They look tired, the makeup's done poorly, their hair's out of whack, or in fact, they just have that general and inevitable insecurity about their own self-image. In this application, the avatar, putting aside whether or not it represents a truer sense of self or not, is just an enabler. And again, the important thing to the metaverse is it is strongly advantaged by the more time you spend online, the more things that you do. And if avatars prove to be a solution that enables us to spend more time, be more comfortable, do more things, the entire industry, so to speak, would benefit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I, I agree. And, and I, I can exactly identify with what you're saying, whereby, you know, sometimes when I play online, I want to be... I want to be me and 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 I want to be perceived as me. I want my hopefully, you know, chaotic, I guess that's what who am I kidding? I'm I'm lawful good. I want <laughs> I want my lawful good nature to 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 play out in in terms of how I'm perceived in that game world. I I want to be perceived as a good person as much as I try and be a good person in the real world. And then there are other times when I want the freedom of what does it feel like to be a bad guy? I'm gonna I'm gonna try and role play a bad guy. I'm gonna try and be a bad guy. Um, and and when that happens, I usually want my 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 avatar. I want my my digital self to represent that. I want to look the part. Um, and so of course, as you know, we spend more and more time online. We we want to maintain the power to, you know, not just bifurcate, but but basically have as many branches of our digital self inside sure. this online space as, as, as we have interests. That makes a lot of sense. Although I do feel, uh, and I, I'm wondering if you agree, much in the same way whereby the world is persistent, I feel like having some character persistence between all of these different experiences or all of these different digital selves is interesting, much in the same way that, again, using Roblox as an example, um, whether I'm playing, you know, Adoption Story or the Plane Crash one or, you know, one of their first-person shooter games, um, there is a commonality that's shared between all of those different experiences. Um, and, and, you know, my, my Roblox and that kind my Robux and that kind of thing can kind of carry over between the experiences. So I feel like even if I have a, a furry version of Ben, who's chaotic evil and is going to go around trolling people inside some future metaverse shard. Um, and I have my, you know, lawful good version, who's a little goody goody two shoes and plays by all the rules there's something binding those two together. There's some commonality that's shared between them. Do you see that persistence of character as being equally important as the persistence of world? Certainly some form of continuity is important anytime you're talking about investment or acquisition or trading and hiring, right? You need continuity of account systems, payments, and entitlements. Yeah. That's going to be important. Yeah. But I think to that end, it's, it's also important that we recognize that persistence of identity is actually slightly different from persistence of representation. Okay. There is no clear argument that wearing my Fortnite skin, at least as it is, is enriching in Call of Duty. In fact, it can be discordant, right? You actually probably don't want your heavily militarized Call of Duty skin going into a shopping mall, a virtual one, <laughs> especially if it's being projected 
in some way, shape, or form into the physical world. And I'm not just not saying that there isn't application there. I actually think that some stylistic reinterpretation can be enriching. But my broader point is we have to disassociate the idea of identity persistence with the avatar and representation persistence, differentiate between the ability to bring along visual goods from one place to another, from whether or not they're used in every place. Okay. Yeah, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about another, not pillar, but sort of commonality that comes up a lot when we look at the sort of metaverse type games, the, the, I don't know, pre-metaverse games that are sort of big right now, which is user-generated content. So, so how important do you consider UGC to be, uh, sorry, UGC user-generated content to be to the metaverse? Um, and, and what do you think needs to happen to make more people um, participate in UGC. And, and, and the example that I like to give here, I read these numbers recently, is that if you look at uh, Roblox, huge you know, phenomenon, incredibly successful, the content creator numbers, they're not huge, right? Three, four, five percent, something like that. They're not, they're not massive. Um, and then if you look at, you know, TikTok numbers, uh, the last numbers I saw were, you know, 58%. Now, obviously those are, you know, one is a game, one is a social network, et cetera, but clearly Roblox is not getting the kinds of user generated content numbers that it, it maybe aspires towards. So I'd just be interested to hear you talk on, on the subject of UGC and how to make it more approachable in general. So I think that there are three elements that are important to understand. And UGC is actually not a great term because we typically refer to UGC as something that is made within a specific platform, right? right? That is UGC content on YouTube, UGC content on TikTok, UGC content on Roblox. And yet every website, for the most part, is UGC. Whether we are going back to Angel Cities and, or Angel Cities, Angel Fire and GeoCities, you can tell how long those brands have been deprecated. Or WordPress or Squarespace, right? This is UGC. And I think yeah. the important element here is the idea that in the web era, anyone can make actually yeah. very easily. That's yeah. actually different from the app economy in which everyone can't make. And Apple can instead adjudicate what can be made and how it can be monetized and what the policies and technologies are. But in both instances, Anyone can create, and it's important to understand that that is UGC, right? A user of the internet is creating content. The other element is to understand how even with those websites in which we don't create, uh, we are creating, right? Which is to say, just responding on a message board sure. or replying to someone's tweet or a Facebook post. You may not be the OP or original poster, so to speak, but you are creating content there. And then the last thing is, of course, we can see another element, which is actually how we define UGC in the creation of worlds and assets that drive the economy. So that is, Ben, you and I are going to go make a game. And Ben, you and I are going to make assets such as a tree, a cat, a chair, a waterfall that can then be sold on the marketplace. All three of those elements of creation are important because, again, if you're going to put the metaverse in the frame of references an internet revolution or an industrial revolution that takes place in the virtual world, then we're talking about something that is the factor of all the inputs and outputs, constraining that to one or two companies that just say, let's make more games or let's make a bigger game or let's partner with a third party game so that we can share data. That's interesting. That's viable. That's going to happen. 
But what we really want is an economy of diverse inputs and outputs. Right. And that requires UGC en masse. Yeah. And so two game platforms really have sort of grabbed my attention in, in the last year. There's Core by Manticore Games, which it is one experience. There's the Sandbox, which, which is another. Both of these are trying to be sort of game-making platforms where uh, the UGC is not particularly on, on, on the Sandbox. The UGC is not limited to I'm making a chair or I'm making a table and you can buy it, but it's I'm making a chair that you can buy. I'm making a game that you can buy. Uh, and, and, you know, and in the example of Core, I make a game if someone comes in and plays it and they microtransact in that game, then, you know, Manticore, the, the developer of it, gives me, the creator, you know, whatever, 50%, I think, of, of the microtransaction value. So I can, I can make money doing so. Um, contrast that to, say, Fortnite, which is, is in many ways probably like the leading metaverse contender, um, but had a very, very different strategy for it, where it sort of said, you know, first we are going to make the central experience, right? Start with Fortnite, expand to, you know, whatever creative mode, expand to party mode, uh, you know, expand to, I don't know, whatever, starting to uh, feature uh, creative mode experiences inside, uh, you know, whatever, inside creative mode. So, 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 you know, Fortnite creators can start to get some some sort of wider visibility, et cetera, et cetera. But it all centers around, you know, the core Battle Royale experience. So do you have thoughts about those two differing models, the sort of um, platform model that is 100% focused on UGC versus the core experience model that, that basically uses a really sort of strong game and fantasy as the nucleus that drives all the further growth? I would actually say that they are a lot more similar than you might see as a player, right? Okay. Or, or an industry observer in the sense that, of course, Fortnite is made on Unreal, which comes from Epic Games, which also publishes Fortnite. But Core is also built on the Unreal Engine, sure. right? And so when we take a look at these underlying ideas of the metaverse of saying it's interoperable, technologies and standards upon which many, many connected things operate. Core is actually a great example of that same element, right? They are not building a new game engine to make it easier for people to make games. They're saying, let's take an existing highly deployed game engine and then make middleware on top of said middleware to make it even easier for others to make games. And then let's put a wrapper experience around it. And so that existence. Uh, the existence of Core is actually validating of Epic's strategy and not in any particularly contrasting way from Fortnite. It is just another implementation of this broad ethos. When it comes to the specific question of the on-ramp, I actually think that, again, they're going to be very similar. It's true that Core is going to market with a wide variety of creators as opposed to Epic, which went to market with one and then started diversifying after. However, the onboarding experience for the user is going to be very similar, which is to say core is going to be used by gamers because they find a game that they want to play. Core is going to be invested in by developers because there are users through which they can build their own sustainable businesses. And so that might be, in Fortnite's case, one primary game with many sub-modes that was popular. In core's instance, it might be 20 different singles and doubles, which collectively 
produce something that draws people to the core platform. But in either instance, they are built to be platforms supported by technology that they own and license that survives or falters based on the demand of their content. Yeah, so Core and the Sandbox still need the killer app. Right. They're still going to need their their real standout games that draw people to the platform in the first place, much in the same way that Battle Royale initially sort of drew people to Fortnite. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. I mm, I wonder, right now my understanding is, is that most of the people sort of adopting those platforms are individuals, although I think there are probably some small groups that are working on some some experiences in Core. Um, uh, and I, I wonder how long it'll be before you start to see companies, you know, game, game companies who just basically say, I'm not going to bother, you know, building my own platform. I'm not going to bother building my own engine. I'm not going to bother building my own anything. I've got an idea for a fantasy. I've got an idea for a story. I'm just going to build it inside of the sandbox. I'm going to just build it inside a core and I'll just accept the, you know, getting 50% instead of a hundred percent. Um, have you heard of anyone doing that yet? And do you think we're far off? Well, so again, we, we've seen this growing adoption of Unreal and Unity among major game publishers for exactly that same reason, right? So that core element, uh, pardon the pun, of saying, let's not build our own engine has been increasingly common. Yeah. Nintendo has Absolutely. made some of its AAA games on Unreal and Unity. Square Enix operates more than a dozen engines and yet chose to build Final Fantasy VII, the remake, on Unreal. And so we're seeing the first element. The second element is, of course, when you're saying more directly, let's not just use the underlying technology, but let's also deliver our game through the creation tools and world of these Fortnite creative mode or core or Roblox or Minecraft platforms. When that happens is a reflection of a number of different things. One is actually getting to the level of engine capability that is required for these games to be the vi- what's in the mind of the producers, which yeah. is to say Fortnite Creative Mode right now does not have the flexibility through which you could make a first-person shooter of comparable quality to Call of Duty or Battlefield. Roblox is similarly constrained. Core is similarly constrained, especially as a you know derivative tool set of Unreal. So you start right. to inherit some of those challenges. And so part of that is just taking a look at when those capabilities are are there. The second is, of course, developer capabilities. Unity's biggest advantage right now is that if you and I wanted to work on a third-party competing engine, we would be able to find maybe one-sixth the total number of developers to hire. And so you and I might have preference for engines A, B, and C, but if we can't find enough people to hire for those engines, we might end up using Unity for a variety of different reasons. And so right yeah. now, there's not a hugely large number of professional-grade developers for these platforms. Now, of course, we're getting there, and we're getting there very quickly. And the greater the monetization, the more people who have ever participated in creative mode or Minecraft or Roblox, especially after they age, will start to change that. Absolutely. But the most important thing here is actually the economics. And this, I think, is where Tim Sweeney's contest with Apple is really important. So when we take a look at Roblox, Roblox only provides roughly 24.5% to 26% of all spend on a game that goes back down to the game creator. That's incredibly modest. It actually, 
well, actually, let's break this down. Why is it so low? Why is it that when you publish an app, you get 70% or 85% on some transactions, but you're getting 24% or the inverse on Roblox? The challenge is when you play Roblox, almost all users are on a iPhone or iPad or they're on a Mm -hmm. PlayStation. There's a 30% platform fee that's going to iOS. Then on top of that, Roblox has to take a platform fee. Roblox's costs are incredibly high. And so it is taking roughly 50% so that it has a profit driver and so that it is covering the marginal costs associated with that game. That ultimately leaves very little to the developer. And of course, the developer then needs to use their 24.5% to cover their taxes, their overall cost, and their investment. One of the challenges with these platform worlds that we see as proto-metaverse is right now they are nestled in between other platforms, which is to say Roblox is a platform on top of the iOS platform that has technical limitations, that has financial limitations, both of which end up trickling down to the developer. One thing that's not yet clear for Core, as an example, is while their 50% commitment is terrific for developers and catalyzing the ecosystem, that money has to come from somewhere. And if that money is coming from Core, that's not good for the developer either, right? Because Core needs to develop its tool sets. The better Core is, the more profitable Core is, the more people it can hire, the better its capabilities are, the more users it can attract to Core, and the more it can provide to its developers. That's a virtuous circle. And so the last most important point is if you're a professional grade developer right now, let's say you can hire people to develop in Roblox. Let's say that you can make something equivalent to your own engine in Roblox. Right now, that mere decision means that you would go from a 70% rev share to a 30% rev share. Right. And so that economic constraint is perhaps the biggest. If you're an electronic arts or let's say even an ex-electronic arts executive who has spun off to produce their own studio, you have two and a half times the financial incentive to not build on these intra-platforms. And note too, that when you decide to build your own title, you in success also own the customer relationship. So these are really important. And I think it's a huge portion of why Epic saw the need to sue Apple for the right to install, the right to use different in-app payments. There's two really important avenues of thought that that brings up that I want to explore with you. And I'm trying to decide which one to do first. Today, typically a a game economy is is pretty unidirectional. I'm a player. I download the game. uh, I see a hat on another player. I think that hat looks really good. I want to buy that hat. I open up the marketplace. I spend my, you know, whatever, let's say 10 bucks to buy a bucket of gems. Apple gets three bucks. The developer gets seven bucks. Um, And as you said, if I were to do that inside of Roblox, you know, the developer might only get $2.50. Where do you see player to player economy as it relates to uh, the adoption of these persistent world games, the growing business model of these persistent world games? And does that help or hinder, you know, the evolution of these towards the metaverse? And, and just to be crystal clear for people listening to this by player to player transaction, what I mean is I see you wearing a hat and then instead of saying, oh, I like that hat, where'd you get it? And you say, I got it in the marketplace. And then I go to the marketplace and I buy it. 
I say, I like that hat. And you say, I'll sell it to you. Uh, you know, it, it's $10 in the marketplace, but it, you know, it's hard to find or it's rare or it's time limited or whatever. I'll sell it to you for $15. And I say, yeah, okay, that's, that's good. And I, I transact and you get whatever, some subset of the $15 and I get the hat. How important do you think those player to player financial transactions inside these games are? So Ben, you raise a really important and interesting question. And I think that there are two different ways that we can go at it. Number one is to understand that games themselves are more popular than they've ever been before. And yet there's still a limitation on the number of people who want to participate in what I'd call games with game-like objectives. And game-like objectives are things like kill, win, shoot, score, defeat. Yeah. There's about 300 million AAA gamers globally of varying degrees of passion, but of course there's 7 billion people. And as technology improves, we'll see more and more people play AAA games because they've been socialized to them, their devices are more capable, their broadband infrastructure is more reliable. But the TAM, so to speak, for games with non-game-like objectives is much, much higher just because most of us statistically don't want game-like objectives like win, kill, shoot, score. Right. We strongly prefer non-game-like objectives. And that are that's things like share, create, identify, express, relax. And I think one of the best ways to look at that is Animal Crossing. Animal Crossing, yeah, I was just going to say. Animal Crossing obviously had COVID-related lift and that stemmed from the lockdown and the mentality of the world at the time in which it released. And yet all games, especially the most successful games of the past decade, saw lift during COVID, right? Sure. Category classics went up. And so to put this in context, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild came out in 2017. It is considered by many to be the best game of all time. It is probably one of the 10 best games of all time. I would strongly disagree with that view, which is probably a view that will cost you the remaining listeners of this podcast. But let's <laughs> put that aside. My son would definitely disagree with you. I mean, it's just a bad take. Uh, not mine, of course, uh, that it's the great. And then you have Super Mario Odyssey, which is also considered one of the you know best games of all time. I would also disagree there, despite the fact I love both of those titles very much and, and the franchises even more. But those games had sold through September of 2020, about 19 million copies. They had been out for three years and benefited from the pandemic and benefited from the fact that the Switch was now multiples more popular and more penetrated than it was at the time of those games release. Yeah, I mean, good luck trying to buy a Switch during the pandemic, right? Totally. But so you have 50 million Switches and three years of availability and 19 million units shipped for both of those considered the two greatest games of all time. And yet Animal Crossing came out in February or April, I can't recall, and it achieved 25 million units shipped. If we went back a year ago and said, Matt, the world's going to have a weird 2020, but guess what's going to be the lifetime highest grossing game on the Nintendo Switch? No one would have believed you that it was going to be Animal Crossing. Right. And yet in hindsight, everything about it makes sense, which is just, that's an expressive game. It's social, it's sharing. And it is in many ways the virtual equivalent of gardening, right? Not just yeah. literally, but I mean like in the therapeutic sense. Yeah. And so to get back to your question about the metaverse, the first theme is just to say that the actually most compelling use case is not about putting on your VR headset, going into Ready Player One and doing a cutting edge, high fidelity, high octane 
car race. It is actually about making things. It is about seeing people. It is about doing what might, for the most part, look like nothing. And so that ability to broaden into those categories is going to be key to adoption and key to usage generally. And so certainly when you start to say that you can have hobbyists, that there will be virtual versions of Etsy, if that is indeed what most of us want to do and most of us want to consume, then that element of UGC that translates into economy is critical. The second element, and this is a little bit different, is just to say that if the metaverse as a thing is the factor of inputs and outputs and the prosperity of its overall ecosystem, then the more people that can participate, the more transactions that can happen is itself the catalyst. A metaverse that is really just the function of five different inputs from five publishers all deciding to collaborate to go after 300 million people, or let's even say 2 billion people, is just not comparable to having billions of users, hundreds of millions of creators, and trillions of transactions per year. So do you think, is there an avenue where the Roblox and the Fortnites and the Minecrafts play nice and, and all hold hands and, and create an interoperable metaverse? Or, or, or do you think we'll see a sort of winner-takes-all? Will we see an open metaverse or will we say a winner-takes-all winner metaverse, do you think? So I certainly don't think that you're going to have a winner-takes-all metaverse. And I think that there are two ways to think about that. One is the impracticality of someone owning everything. And then the second thing would be if you have a winner-takes-all metaverse, do you actually have a metaverse? Instead, right, you right. might just have a more dominant virtual version of the internet. That's right. But I think the more important way to look at this is we kind of know what the format looks like. Take a look at the web today. The web is open. It's not fully open. There are many companies that are closed, that are more closed than others, that have their controls and enforce their controls differently and different controls. And so the metaverse is likely to look similar. We might actually have a world in which the metaverse exists at large and Roblox does not meaningfully participate in the sense that it allows for some things, not many things, but it mostly just says, look, this is a gated community, right? We are part of the municipality, but you can't just drive in here. And <laughs> There's a guard at the gates. Right. And, and that's, a, that's a totally viable strategy in the sense that like, the market determines, and if you want to do that, you have the right to do that. The more optimistic argument would be that most places are pretty open. And most places would be pretty open because there are significant economic advantages to doing so. And those economics are not just about profit incentives directly. They are about the prosperity of the experiences that you are building. Let me give you an example. If you and I, Ben, want to create an Animal Crossing or Fortnite store, we create goods. We are constrained in our ability to invest or should be by the fact that we have a single choke point, and that is Animal Crossing, which is to say, if that game dies, if that game does well, our business does well or poorly or dies. And so we would naturally say, we can't go all in here. We have to moderate our investment. And so Animal Crossing would say, well, how do we, or should say, let's, let's put aside the specifics, especially as it relates to Nintendo, that the ability to provide interoperability that allows us to build everywhere and then leverage those into the Animal Crossing platform where the users are is enriching for our investment, which is good for their economy, which is good for their users. 
So that's the input side. That's the business side. But let's think about it from the consumer side. How much you are willing to pay for an emote on Fortnite is limited by the extent to which you spend time on Fortnite and reasonably conclude that you will continue to spend time on Fortnite. It stands to reason that if buying a dance or an emote or an avatar could be applied elsewhere, was applied elsewhere by you regularly, and meant that if Fortnite stopped being your game or you didn't like Fortnite, or let's even say Fortnite gets banned from more devices, that you would still have that. Your willingness to pay should go up as your utility and expected utility goes up. And so the argument should be or would be that most of these platforms, even those that are today closed, would see benefits from openness, significant openness, or at least a material amount of openness, because it would drive both greater investment by business, leading to better goods, and more transactions from users, which fulfills that loop. Yeah. There is a whole other podcast episode, I think, on, maybe you want to participate in it, on cryptocurrency, distributed ledger, blockchain, how that can be leveraged to allow players to extract value from one game and and, and sort of transpose that into another. I read a headline recently somewhere that said something like 70% of players polled said they would invest more in in in-app purchases uh, inside of the games they're currently playing if they had some way to extract value from that ex- from that game um, when they were ready to stop and move on to a new game. And, and as we've been talking about right now, that's generally speaking very difficult to do, um, but, but probably one day we will see some sort of um, interoperability whereby a player can say, you know what, I'm, I'm done with Roblox for a while. I'm going to cash out of Roblox somehow and, and yet transfer some of this investment over to, you know, whatever Minecraft or Fortnite 2 or whatever it is where my friends are currently playing. And they wouldn't be starting from zero because the time and labor and energy they had invested inside of Roblox is somehow um, at least partially remunerated. And, and there is a carryover there. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You've talked about it. 2020 was crazy. COVID is crazy. It was a crazy year for games. It was a crazy year for being online. We saw you know, concerts uh, in in Roblox and concerts in in Fortnite that just absolutely kind of destroyed real world participation numbers. What was it? Thirty one million people participated in the Little Nas X concert in Roblox or something like that. I mean, they're they're really insane participation numbers. Um, one day, you know, COVID will be mostly resolved. There will be some sort of vaccine. We'll have some sort of immunity, herd immunity, we'll all be vaccinated and crossing our fingers that the next big one doesn't hit in our lifetimes. Do you think there's going to be like a renaissance of real world entertainment where everyone says, oh my God, we can go out again. Let's let's go to theaters. Let's go to concerts. Forget Animal Crossing. That was just a COVID thing. Um, and we'll see sort of like a drop in digital or or has that ship sailed? Have we hit some sort of tipping point whereby um, online digital participation crossed a threshold and is just going to pick up and pick up and pick up. And we're going to see more and more of these events and things that we used to typically associate with the real world take place inside of digital experiences. I don't think that we have to think of them as adversarial in the sense that you can go to a physical concert and therefore you will not go to a virtual concert. I think ultimately there's competition in the sense that A virtual concert needs to, like any entertainment experience, earn its raison d'etre. 
It has to be good. It has to be compelling. It has to be different. It has to offer something. In that regard, the virtual concerts of the past year have doubtlessly benefited from the lack of alternatives. And yet they have not tried to replicate right. the exactitude of a real concert, or at least I would say the better ones were very different. Of course, there's going to be some different dynamic once we start going back to concerts, once we want to spend less time in a virtual world and all the rest of it. But it's also important to understand how early we are in the tech curve here. The technologies for live operated events is nascent. Uh, the concerts we've seen today have not deployed live performance motion capture. Right. And so those are just immediately foreseeable improvements that will lead to change and, and more innovation. And I think the best way to take a look at that is the Marshmallow concert in Fortnite was an incredibly skeuomorphic version of a real concert, right? It was basically saying, look, we've got a virtual stage and let's put a virtual DJ on that virtual stage and the virtual versions of humans will dance around on a virtual floor. Once we got to Travis Scott a year and a half later, we're talking about jumping through time and space and dimension playing in an entire world, building through that world, distorting physics. And yet we're still not talking about live motion capture. We're just yeah. talking about the physics and the location. We will get to points in time in which Travis might say, I'm going to do live motion capture and that will allow me to interact with the audience in real time. And maybe the audience is involved in the storytelling. But I'll tell you what's the most fun is even when we're saying a live physics unbound version of the artist, we're still thinking somewhat linearly. Like what happens when you actually just motion capture track Travis to the mountains, right? What if what he's performing is actually terraforming a planet as right. opposed to dancing? I don't mean that as a in a particularly specific way, but we're still thinking about how do we recreate at least the person. And over time, as these virtual concerts lean into how they can differentiate, how they can be better, not just online, we'll start to find a lot more to participate in, right? Yeah. And and therefore theoretically see the numbers continue to stay high and 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 possibly even grow. Um well and, and let's also keep in mind that there are these enormous constraints to traditional concerts in, in the sense that Taylor Swift has millions, tens of millions of fans around the world. The number of those fans that she could do a live performance to practically in a year, has a literal constraint, but it has a human constraint too, in that she wants time with her family and friends yeah. and she's exhausted and she wants to give a good performance. There's this idea that it's actually just very democratizing, which I know is a hackneyed idea of the internet overall, but the fact that you can do a performance from a location that can be distributed globally, that can also run individual events for individual markets, is just really compelling. And so you should see more and more viewership, that doesn't mean it's New York Fortnite players. It might just be, you know, Argentine Free Fire players. Right. Most of whom never get these opportunities. So you talked about two things here that I find really fascinating. Um, brand crossovers, nascent, the fact that this is nascent, these are very, very early days and that we we, we typically think about it, you know, quite analog you know, with a strong analogy to the real world, like kind of how do we reproduce the real world experience inside these digital spaces? And, and, and maybe that linear mapping is, is, um, is a constraint that we will break free from soon and, and, and see some really interesting new thoughts. 
some might know this, some might not. You yourself uh, were involved in, in, in the creation of something that I think is sort of starting to push the limits a little bit in terms of how we think about these online events. I'm, I'm thinking here about the massively interactive live event that you, you helped create with Genvid. Um, Rival Peaks, uh, people, if you haven't seen it, you can check it out on Facebook. It's, it's, it's pretty neat. But um, the, the area in particular about that that I'm curious about your thoughts on is, is the role of, of personality, of talent. You know, Will Wheaton as it relates to Rival Peaks, Travis Scott as it relates to the kind of Fortnite concert. How important do you think sort of personality, celebrity, talent um, is in kind of us hitting the next tier, the next number of, of you know, whatever, going from the 30 million to the 300 million um, in, in these, these, these online experiences? I'd say the following. We can talk about technology and capability, the internet, standards, protocols, high concurrency, synchronicity. No one wants those things, right? right? There, there are people who say, I would like the world that would have these things, but there's no audience that says, I'm looking for that. That's the thing that would make me happy. I'm going to go play this Battle Royale because it has 300 CCUs per server or per, set, per shard, as opposed to 150. And in fact, we can take a look at game design, right? Is Fortnite better with 200 players per map? Maybe, but it's not the fact that 200 are there. It's the fact that the game has been designed for 200 and the creative is superb. I mean this to say that it is the content and the experiences that make any of this compelling. And the more that they are compelling, uh, the more we'll use them. And yet, at the same time, we've learned a whole bunch of lessons as to what those that talent is. For the most part, it is talent and content and experiences that is native to that new technology, right? TikTokers, the most popular TikTokers are not YouTubers, and the most That's popular right. YouTubers are not Disney stars. In fact, we can take a look at Quibi as a counterexample. That was going broadly for TikTok's lane, but with Hollywood TV and film stars. And that mismatch is, you know, combined with a number of other different factors, but I think Ultimately, that personality, that content is going to be key. It has to be key because that's the reason we're there. But when you're talking about who that's likely to be, that's going to be people that are native to that experience of platform. Oh, that's very and interesting. Will is a great example because although Will didn't emerge in the what we call Miles game format, massive interactive live events, he sits in that place of saying we're in an online community that's bi-directional with large audiences to explore the vanguard of technology, media, and fandom. And so that's a cultural fit. Yeah. But it's almost doubtlessly true that the vast majority of talent and games will be native to the technologies that are yet to be unveiled. Oh, it'll be very interesting. It maybe ties into one of the closing questions, sort of like, what does the metaverse look like in five years? It's five years from now. It's 2026, January, you and I are sitting down, we're doing a follow-up, and after the podcast, we're going to jump in and play a game together. What What do you think that's going to look and feel like? Any any things that jump out at you as, as um, trends that are so solidly on the rise right now that you feel confident kind of putting on your soothsayer hat and saying, this will be part of our gaming experience in five years? <laughs> I think we can we can take a look at some core elements, right? It's it's clear that we are going to see more of these big virtual persistent worlds. 
we are going to see more people participating in them, not just concurrently, but I mean overall. It is clear that there is going to be a more vibrant economy. More people are going to be building on them. More people are going to be thriving and consider it their primary vocation. Uh I, I think all of those core elements are pretty intuitive. And yet, I think that we can also say at the same time that what makes this so fun, and it gets back to the top of the call about curiosity, the lack of a roadmap, is so much of it is uncertainty, right? You can take a look at Fortnite. I don't think anyone realistically would have said that the most metaverse-like platform was going to be started as a battle royale game. I think five years ago, that would have been completely unclear. And obviously, Epic didn't even know that either because they didn't start with a battle royale modality. What they started with with was a game they expected to be able to very quickly navigate and change because of culture and technology. And so it's designed for the metaverse, but without a clear expectation of it. And I think when you take a look even at the other companies fashioning themselves like Roblox, Roblox started in 2004. It went public or was publicly playable in 2006. No one cared about the game for the most part until 2016. By 2018, it was one of the largest media experiences on earth. And in 2020, it is perhaps the most popular one. I don't mean that in a bad way. In fact, I think it's incredibly inspiring. It's a victory of vision. But let's keep in mind that vision was 15, 16 years ahead of the rest of the world. And so to try and speculate with hyper-precision is something I try to do professionally as a venture investor and an advisor and as a producer. But we have to be very humble about what's predictable and what's not. So I think as part of that, let's go back to this early analogy of predicting technology and the internet. In the 90s, we knew with pretty much certainty, those core elements of user-generated content, of instant messaging, of digital transactions. And yet, so much of today's internet, from the behaviors to the memes, to the methods of monetization, to the companies, and the content itself was totally unpredictable, right? We knew these elements, and yet TikTok was not something that we envisioned in 1990. We didn't envision it in 2020. Uh, 2012, rather. We didn't look at the future of digital transactions in the 90s or even 2000s and think of Bitcoin or Twitch. And so I think that's that's what's really exciting about the future. The future is going to have everything we have today, but more of it. But most importantly, it's going to have those same elements entirely remixed in an unpredictable way. And odds are that the companies that do that are going to be at the forefront, much like Roblox is a titan that four years ago no one had heard of. So... Is there a Roblox displacing or a Fortnite displacing game in development right now, do you think? And what I mean by that is, is it possible to... Displace suggests that they somehow lose. Is there room at the top of the Pantheon for other experiences to join the Roblox and the Fortnites and the Minecrafts of the world? So the answer is absolutely yes. And there are huge number of ways in which we can identify that. If you go back five years, six years, seven years, right at the time in which Minecraft was purchased, it had 25 million monthly active users. Grand Theft Auto probably had about 20, 25 million monthly active users. These were the biggest games in the world. And yet, when we take a look at them today in 2020, those games have three to seven times more users than they had before. And that in and of itself is not what's shocking. What is shocking is that at the same time, 
new games have emerged that have richly eclipsed that. Roblox had less than 10, now has 165. Fortnite didn't exist and wasn't going to exist for far more, many more years. And now it's looking at probably 60 to 80 million monthly active users, potentially more. Garena's Free Fire has 100 million plus monthly active users, bigger than Fortnite. PUBG is in tens of millions. And then, of course, you can take a look at the Asian worlds and games. It is both incredibly cynical to believe that there can't be new displacing ones and also overtly denied by history. And then more importantly, you can take a look at this idea that not only did new ones emerge and old ones grow, but there's no evidence that displacement was required. Roblox has not needed Minecraft to die, for example. And so I think that's deeply inspiring. That does not mean there's room for everyone indefinitely. That does not mean that there isn't competition for the marginal user. But I think it is doubtlessly true that, especially as new technologies emerge, whether that is interactive streaming or cloud-based simulations, that we will have new, more, better, more capable platforms. I guess just... um as a, as a sort of side note or a continuation of that, we've talked about a lot of supporting technologies uh, over the course of the last hour. We've briefly mentioned AR, VR when you were first talking about, you know, the definition of the metaverse or the sort of typical definition of the metaverse, maybe the Ready Player One uh, version of the metaverse. Um, we talked a little bit about blockchain, uh, although granted we could go go much deeper on that. Um, you talked a little bit about kind of cross-platform when we were, when you were sort of mentioning the, the the sort of four pillars uh, for you of, of the metaverse. You didn't explicitly say cross-platform, but you definitely talked about, um, you know, needing to be interoperable. Um, you're just now sort of talking a little bit about cloud native and streaming. Um, are there other technologies on the horizon um, that you are particularly interested in or excited about that you think are... Uh, again, sort of on the on the cusp of seeing greater adoption, greater kind of pickup in pop mass market adoption that that'll be foundational to the metaverse. What I would say is more exciting or, or perhaps the more direct way to get here is to take a look at the idea that we are at this intersection point in which the devices that we are using for our access to virtual worlds are getting richly, richly more capable all the time, but we are starting to hit this critical lever point, which is to say, most iPhones and iPads, if they could play Fortnite, played a version of Fortnite that was deeply, deeply stripped down. It looked like playing MS Flight Sim in 1999. Almost nothing is rendering. You're seeing no textures. The frame rate is limited to 20 or 30 uh, frames per second. And yet, if you take a look at the iPhone 11 Pro or the iPad Pro. These are $1,400 devices, to be clear, but they're probably two to three years away from equivalent technology in the standard skew of an iPad or iPhone. So you're getting into $500 to $700 for which most people are going to be operating. Why does that matter? Well, today the iPad Pro, the iPhone 4 Pro, offers twice the resolution and twice the frame rate of the PlayStation 4 Pro, or the most penetrated, dedicated, multi-hundred dollar consoles in the living room. And it's true that they are far below what a PlayStation 5 or Xbox Series X can do, but we're talking about very marginal differences. It's not the difference between playing MS Flight Sim in 2000 versus 1999. It is about the depth of your vision. It is about 4K versus 2K. Right. And so 
as these devices go from only being really able to play Candy Crush or a Supercell hit game, which, don't get me wrong, are incredible, but can't properly immerse themselves in rich, highly simulated, processor-intensive virtual worlds to something that can do it, and not only can do it, but can do it as well as all of our technology could in 2019, that's going to be different. That's going to be important. Because ultimately, where we spend our time is a reflection of what we can do and how much we enjoy it. And that's not something that technology is the solution for. It's not that we want a dedicated GPU-based experience, but it's what you can do when you have a dedicated GPU that is top of the line, that everyone is using. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. That last point is super critical. It's not just that you have a dedicated GPU that's top of the line. It's that hundreds of millions of other people do as well. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I mean, the guys at League of Legends will talk about the fact that they had an even the toaster programming yeah. objective, right? And one of the reasons why League of Legends is so popular in China is because it plays on integrated GPUs on low-end laptops. Yeah. That is not to besmirch the quality of the game creative, but it's saying that the massive advantage at the time was more people could access it. That's the same as what free-to-play has done, except it was done on a technological capability. And so once we say that actually you can go after richly animated, complex worlds without that being a constraint, that's incredible. Well, I mean, over the last hour and 20 minutes, we've definitely painted a a compelling picture for what it is going to be to play video games in the next five years. I can, can almost close my eyes and see it. Now, obviously, I've been playing games my whole life. I've been working in game creation my entire professional career. So maybe I am um, slightly biased there. But hopefully people listening to this podcast have taken something out of this conversation because I know I have uh, and, and can kind of close their own eyes and, and kind of picture where where we're going. And, and maybe some of them will, will help us get there. Um, But thank you very much, Matthew. This has been a a very enlightening conversation. Uh, Clearly, this is something you think about a lot. uh, And I appreciate you taking the time today to uh, share your thoughts on any of this and all of this with me. Before we wrap up, are there any subjects that you think we should have touched on? Any notes you want to close with? Or just general sort of summarize or summaries or closing arguments or points you want to make? (laughs) No, I I think we're good. I think it is, if there is an important closing note, it is just how inspiring everything that we've talked about is. The degree of change, the idea of lowering limitations and the unpredictability of the future and the, you know, understanding that the giants of tomorrow need not displace those of today, just surpass them, is what makes this such a fun category. It's unlike anything we've seen in any other media categories, right? The book publishers that have existed for 100 years of the book publishers that lead today. That's the same with Hollywood, same with TV for the most part. It's not the case with gaming. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mattis. And I want to thank our guest today, Matthew Ball, for spending the last hour and a half with me discussing everything metaverse. As I hinted at through the episode, this was a wide-ranging subject with many sub-trends I'd love to dive deep into. Hopefully Matthew will accept our open invitation to come back and join us again in the future. If you are curious about the metaverse, about any of the sub-trends we talked about today, or the future of entertainment in general, please like and subscribe this podcast 
And don't hesitate to email us at podcasts at rovio.com with any suggestions or questions you might have or recommendations for future guests you'd like us to try and interview. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day.